0: Hello friends, this is Ken Aldridge, head of school. And in this edition of the Quaker Matters podcast, we hear from Shirley Padmore Mensa, Wilmington Friends School class of 1987. In this episode, Shirley discusses her time as a student here at Friends, her decision to become a lawyer, her love of
1: litigation, and why she decided to transition careers and become a magistrate judge. Enjoy.
0: And I'll never forget um, we were like a few weeks into the semester and she would put the answers to the homework assignment from the night before on the board. And she she would put, you know, here's the book's way of solving these problems. Here's my way. And then one day she did. Here's the book's way. Here's my way. And here's Shirley Padmore's way. Um, and it was probably the biggest compliment that I had ever gotten uh, to that point in in terms of my education. But it did a couple things. Number one, it boosted my you know, it was very affirming in terms of my competence in math, and it made me feel really good about that. But it also you know, kind of taught me that there's more than one way to approach problem solving. And that's kind of what I do. That's what I did as a lawyer. That's what I do as a judge. <laughs>
1: Welcome to another episode of the Quaker Matters podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Wilmington Friends School class of 1987 graduate Shirley Padmore Mensa, who is a chief judge for the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri. Shirley, how are you? Great. Good to see you. Good to see you and excited to learn more about you and and your journey at Friends and then beyond Friends. So I guess to start the podcast, it'll be a little bit Friends-centric here and then we'll dive into your career. So when were you first introduced to Wilmington Friends School?
0: Oh boy, I don't remember when I was first introduced. I know that I was at Friends from 1983 to 1987. I'm pretty sure that you know, the introduction was through my aunt, Cecily, who lived in Wilmington, and we had we had actually lived with them for a little bit after we first moved to Wilmington. Her kids were at Tatnell, and um, so she was encouraging my parents to put us, to put me and my older sister into a private school because we were kind of struggling, especially socially in public school, so... Yeah. We, we went to like, a, I think there was some kind of a school fair or something with the independent schools, and, and you could talk to people at different tables. That's my memory of it, but I was very young. So.
1: A lot of folks have like one teacher, one coach that impacted them in many ways, and I wanted to ask you who that person was for you during your time at Wilmington Friends.
0: Oh, probably... I mean, I, I, there were a couple teachers that had a, a big impact, but probably the, the most influential for me was uh, Mr. Brown, Carrie Brown. He was the honors English teacher. And I always liked reading and literature, but he just really that I just really blossomed in his class in terms of my, my love for literature and writing and English. Um, he was just a phenomenal teacher. And I just really enjoyed his class. It was almost like a college seminar style. In fact, I remembered I think when I either when I got on the law review at my law school or got my first um, note or comment published, I wrote to him, and I hadn't been in touch with him since I had graduated from friends and and thanked him for um, you know for all that he had done for me and and things like that. And he wrote back. He wrote a really nice note back. So yeah, probably Mr. Brown.
1: In what ways do you feel like Wilmington Friends help prepare you for your professional career?
0: Yeah, so I mean, definitely the the strong um, reading skills and and uh, English and literature and and analysis uh, I, that was definitely a big a big boost, I think. But I, just also the approach to teaching. Um, I just think you know, friends for me like represented the first time in a school setting where i felt like i was given permission to just be myself right to just i just didn't you know coming from the the background i came from where i came from schools where discipline and order and uniformity seemed to have priority over everything else and at friends i just felt like we were always encouraged to you know, think things through, think outside the box. Like I remembered Mrs. Holmes was teaching, I was in an honors like algebra two or pre-calculus class or something. And and I'll never forget, um, we were like a few weeks into the semester and she would put the answers to the homework assignment from the night before on the board. And she She would put, you know, here's the book's way of solving these problems. Here's my way. And then one day she did, here's the book's way. Here's my way. And here's Shirley Padmore's way. Um, And it was probably the biggest compliment that I had ever gotten uh, to that point in, in terms of my education. But it did a couple of things. Number one, it boosted my, you know, it was very affirming in terms of my competence in math. And it made me feel really good about that. But it also, you know, kind of taught me that there's more than one way to approach problem solving. And that's kind of what I do. That's what I did as a lawyer. That's what I do as a judge. Perspective taking, something else that I learned in my time at Friends, I don't know if it was religious studies or we did this religion class, I think it was required, but we learned about all these different world religions in school, it wasn't focused on one or the other. So that that perspective taking and, and really, Thinking about an issue from like a a 360 degree look at something. I think that really laid the foundation um, for really uh, being good at thinking analytically, uh, which is important when you're a lawyer and especially important when you're a judge being able to take perspectives and, and come to a decision.
1: Before we uh, recorded this, you were recently, or you were just speaking to your classmate uh, Susan Finizio, who is my boss, and uh, she told me <laughs> that she has spoken a lot about the uh, Wilmington Friends School rap cheerleaders. So I just, mm-hmm. have, I just have it on here. Can you tell me more about your rap cheerleading days? And I have a little <laughs> about how you guys would perform at basketball games. So, I don't know. Take that wherever you want to take it.
0: That's right. It, I mean, that goes right to my thing about you know um feeling like i was allowed to just be who i i was you know just to be to be me um susan and i started the rap cheerleaders i don't really remember what prompted it other than our love for run dmc and other rap music uh and you know in the winter we didn't have a winter a formal winter cheerleading squad so the 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 I don't want to offend anybody. The real cheerleaders, the ones who could do flips and splits, and you know, they were like gymnasts. I was not one of those people, and I knew that I could, I couldn't have been on that cheerleading squad. They were in the fall and in the spring. So in the winter, when there was this sort of quiet time, um, I, we were really surprised at the number of girls who were interested in being rap cheerleaders. And so we made up the cheers, we had different moves and we cheered at the basketball game. It was so much fun. It was great. It yeah. was great. And and what was really nice was the support that we got. So much support from faculty, from families. Like people would come up and say, "Oh, it's so nice to have non-traditional cheerleaders."
1: <laughs> that's awesome. I think I think we might need to bring that back. So that, that's <laughs> That's not here, so I think I, there's, I, no,
0: there's no longer a, a winter rap cheerleading squad, huh?
1: There is no. Oh. I think I, I think that legacy may have ended with the class of '87. So oh I
0: don't know. no, oh. oh no, yeah. So and I think we started with um. She and I are gonna have to talk about it. <laughs> I remember it's tricky. It's tricky to beat this team to beat this team and win the game. It's tricky. How was it, Zeus? Tricky, tricky, tricky.
1: Uh, that is, that's the best piece of content that I've heard. Um, Um, I want to shift gears here a little bit and discuss your family and your career. And in doing my prep for this interview, I came across a quote where you said, your family did not shield you from the truth in as much or as little detail as you would like. Would you be able to touch upon this particular quote as it relates to you and your family coming to the United States at the age of 10 from Liberia? Well, we were in it. We saw
0: the we, we saw what was happening. Um, and we had a lot of conversations um, when I was growing up about the things that happened that led to the coup. Um it's like going all the way back to just the founding of the country. History was very important to my father. Um the and we spent a lot of time talking about you know, trying to separate out I don't want to say fact from fiction, but 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 there there were a lot of um narratives out there about what led to the um the breakup of the country. And so we talked about the indigenous people the liberia the indigenous liberians who had been there and the extent to which they were excluded from the levers of power in the society um we we looked at we talked about um the roles that my family played you know my we were part of the in group and you know what what does that mean and when people look the other way if they see that their injustice is happening, um, so they didn't. We had a lot of great conversations around the dinner table just about the importance of making sure that everyone in a society uh, feels heard and uh, has has access to uh, justice. And fairness. And um, the other thing that I think I took away from all of those conversations um, that really had a big impact on me um, in terms of my career path and, and what I, you know, my approach today is is really the importance of the importance of strong institutions, right? I mean, one of the things that happened in Liberia uh, was that not the president who was assassinated during the coup, but the president before him, um, I think kind of took all of the power that had been originally invested in the three branches of government. Liberia was set up a lot like the United States and, and took that power and put it in himself. He centralized power over a period of like 25 years. Now he was a, he was, he was married to my great aunt. Um my, you know, he was at my parents' wedding and he, you know, he was he was beloved by many people, but he made choices and did things during his time in office. He extended term limits. Liberia had term limits before the United States even did. He did away with term limits. Um and then he died, and he was seen as a strong man um and so that's what human beings do they die and that created a great deal of instability because instead of the institutions being strong he put all that power in himself and i think that was very destabilizing now of course i didn't know all of that when i was you know 10 11 12 13 having these conversations especially with my dad but we would debate these things for years and i was like well this person is to blame and he's well you can't really say that outside of the family, because people would be very offended by that. But what I took away from all of it was, wow, it's really important to have a, when you have a system, a good system, um, to really keep it, fortify it, make sure that all of the people who are governed have access (laughs) to the levers of power, or at least have a forum for being heard. And that's something that I really took into my, into my career as a judge, much more so than as a lawyer. I mean, as a lawyer, you're an advocate. So you're advocating for one side or the other. But once I had the opportunity to to become a judge, just making sure that I'm really hearing the most powerful person in the room and the least powerful person in the room and that they feel heard and that they know that they're being heard and that their perspective is being considered. You know, I didn't think about it before. I just we were just living our lives and there were people who worked for us and I just thought everybody was as happy as I was and then I woke up one day and found out that was not true.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that and I think a lot of what you just said as as you alluded to informs your career and decision making today in continuing with the theme of family I wanted to highlight your grandparents, Edith and George, and I'm going to tell you things that you already know about them, but just to give context for our listeners, your grandmother was a force in public service as she hosted many important dignitaries, was an informal member of President Tubman's cabinet, was the first female cabinet member years later for President Tolbert, serving as the secretary for the Ministry of Health and was the driver of their business ventures together with your grandfather. And your grandfather was the Liberian ambassador to the United States. He was present when the United Nations was formed representing Liberia and wrote a book titled Memoirs of a Liberian Ambassador. All of that is the setup to ask, how special was it getting to live with both of them in Delaware? and really learning from them.
0: Oh, it was it was incredibly special, you know, when you're when you're in it you don't always appreciate it, but looking back um it, that was one of the gifts of the uh of the military coup was that we had these years with my grandparents. They didn't live continuously with us, but they would come and stay for extended periods. Um and so I I think I learned a history that I otherwise probably would not would not have learned you know just watching the two of them interact I could see number one that they were and probably always had been partners um they have they had a lot of stories together between the two of them they had seen a lot and done a lot together as a couple um and just you know hearing about all of the world leaders that they met the circumstances under which they met them, you know, things that I would learn about in school. And it was like, oh, yeah. Oh, I was at the, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't the United Nations. It was League of Nations. He like back to the I'm learning about the League of Nations. and My grandfather was like, oh, yes, I was there as a delegate. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's amazing. Right. Here's a firsthand account from somebody who was there and you know, just to hear reports about there was an investigation into slavery. The League of Nations sanctioned Liberia for engaging in slavery, and he was able to speak to what was the country's position, what was being characterized as slavery, and you know, like it was much more nuanced and it was just fascinating. It was it was an amazing and an amazing time. But you know, even beyond learning about the history and having all that wonderful um, exposure was just, just watching these two who had been together forever, you know, just really what I learned most about them was, was how to be in a marriage and to accept the bad with the good. And boy, they were a really powerful, uh, they were a really powerful couple in that way.
1: You also mentioned that your father is the reason you became a lawyer and a judge because he constantly told you that you would make a good lawyer. So (laughs) it's kind of a two part question, which I'm not supposed to do, but um, I think you can handle it. Did you ever like have the urge to resist this or was this like the positive affirmation that you felt that you needed him saying that you would become a good lawyer?
0: I don't know that I ever had the urge to resist. I mean, it was more of a,
1: you know, he didn't really push. My
0: dad was not, he was not somebody, it was like more like subliminal messages, right? <laughs> he would say, oh, you ask a lot of questions. You'd make a good lawyer. Or you're very inquisitive. You'd make a good lawyer. Or you like to argue, <laughs> you know? So it was more suggestive. So I, I don't think that that really set me up to be in a position to to try to resist it although I did try very hard at times in college to totally ruin my chances of becoming a lawyer because of doing things that college students do. <laughs> but that was not necessarily resistance. It was probably just stupidity. <laughs> he gave me the right amount of support and affirmation, I think. I think I needed, well, I don't know. I think I needed to hear it, but it was it almost the first time I can remember anyone saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? the words just came out of my mouth. I don't think I even thought about it. I said, I want to be a lawyer.
1: Why was your first year of law school at Washington University in St. Louis, why was that so transformational for you?
0: So, you know, I took, I was pretty young when I graduated from friends. I was, I was 17 when I went to undergrad um, I took off a year between undergrad and law school, and that was good. Um, and so when I got to law school, I, I think I was a lot more focused than maybe I would have been if I had just gone straight through. And it was really law school was very difficult for me, but I loved every single thing about learning about the law. I liked the Socratic method. I liked trying to figure things out. I liked the problem-solving approach that was done. And, you know, I always thought I was a good writer, but when I did legal research and writing that first year of law school and had this wonderful um, legal writing instructor who completely like dismantled my style of writing so that I could learn how to write like a lawyer, it is very different. Than other kinds of writing. So that was huge for me. Um, and it it was very, it was very challenging, but it was a challenge that I really enjoyed. And then I went, I got this internship to work at a big law firm, which I, I wasn't really sure. In fact, I, I didn't think I wanted to work at a big law firm. Big law firms had bad reputations. Um, but this summer, that I interned at um, what was then Hush and Eppenberger, that was transformational for me. It completely changed my perspective about big law firms and what they do there.
1: What was your expectation perception going in? And then how was that altered kind of after that first summer?
0: I think, I think there was a book called one L that I read, um, it was a fiction and then there was maybe it was the firm maybe there was some other book but the 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 popular narrative about big law firms and even law schools was that they were very cutthroat and people were backstabbing and all of that and that's that is kind of what i was expecting to find both at law school and um when i went to uh to work at hush and i found none of that neither at the law school i mean i'm sure there were there were people who were very competitive but i you know <laughs> it didn't. I didn't see that it wasn't rampant, and it didn't impact me directly, that I know of. Um, and you know, at the law firm, I was expecting it to be very stiff and stuffy. Um, and and I didn't know. Um, I didn't know how I would be perceived. You know, am I a go getter? So I, I was just really worried about about all of that. And I thought well I'm doing this because I want to get the experience, I want to get the exposure, I want to get some training with writing and and research and and all of that and get some feedback and so my attitude was I'm coming in to get feedback and then I'll move on. Um, Nor did I think that I would stay in St. Louis so all my family was on the east coast and I figured I'll get this experience. I'll make really good money for the summer. They paid extremely well. um, And and then I'll be done with it. But I got there and um, I found people who were incredibly smart, really, really smart people who could have been stuffy and condescending, but they weren't. Um, I learned so much my first summer about the practice of law, about really having what it took to have strong research and analytical skills, I mean partners who would like trembling go up to them to ask the question, and they'd look at me and blink and say, "Oh, come with me," and we'd go to the library and they would show me their approach step by step by step, you know, how would you tackle this issue Here's where I would look, think about this, think about that it was. That was transformational, the, the level of mentoring that I received, and I just, I was blown away by that, and and um, they were fun. They were smart and funny, and we went on float trips and went to ball games, and of course, it's a summer program. Now I know that's what they're supposed to do, right? They're supposed to make you think that it's going to be all fun and games, uh, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs>
1: In continuing to do my prep and in that same interview, you are quoted, or you said, I should say, that litigation is my thing. How, why was litigation your thing?
0: That's funny. Because I, I was I was dragged, kicking and screaming into litigation. I mean, I knew I wanted to do litigation because what I what I envisioned for myself was that I was going to and I worked very hard on my writing skills. Um I knew that I was good with the research and the analysis, but I I wanted to focus on improving my writing. So I figured I'm going to be a brief writer. I'll be the person in the background. I don't see myself as the trial lawyer, you know, getting out there. And um, like the spring after I graduated from law school and started at the firm, they sent me off to do this trial this jury trial. I was like, no, I don't think so. And they're like, no, you, you gotta do it. You're the, you know, you're the junior person. You gotta go and t- it's a small case. We, we can't put big, you know, high billing partners on this. This is a small case, so we need somebody with a low billing rate to handle it. And I was terrified and I was terrible. Um, I waived the jury and that was a mistake, apparently. <laughs> um I did I did get some money for the client on a counterclaim they were they were defending the case. Uh, I had a script that I was following like this, but when it was over, I was like, that was great. That was great. And then I think the very next year I had a jury trial um, and just loved it. The interaction with between myself and the jury and telling the client' story to people, who had no dog in the fight like once i understood like a trial this is a search for the truth and we want you to understand this is this is how what we think happened and here's what the law requires and you know once i got it it was great because it's it's really it's taking the law and bringing it to life to help somebody solve a real problem and once you understand that then it's not so scary
1: after an incredibly successful 17-year law career, you had the opportunity in 2012 to become a magistrate judge. How did this opportunity come to be?
0: Well, you know, it probably goes back to before that. I there was a partner at the firm who himself became a judge and he'd been one of my mentors and um at the firm and after he became a judge he kind of planted the seed you know he said you know i think you would make a good judge you've got the right temperament right some people are advocates and they want you to say this is the issue go fight and you fight and you know exactly what you're fighting for and you take a position and you stake it out um and i enjoyed being an advocate but I really like being a neutral, where my job is to figure out what is the right answer in this dispute. And I think he saw that in me and kind of planted that seed. And I started thinking about it. Um, I had actually applied unsuccessfully for a state court judge position before this federal magistrate judge position came up. So I think there was like almost 10 years in between. When I applied for the state court position, I learned very quickly how political that particular process was, and that was really hard. I mean, you know, there's still some schmoozing for the federal position, but it's much more of a, you fill out an application, you're screened by a panel. If they like you, you're a finalist. In fact, they discourage you from having people call the judges and put in a good word for you. So um, that process was much more i don't know i like that process better <laughs> than the uh than the state process the state process was i, I didn't have the connections the political connections, nor did i want to pursue them so i didn't i didn't pursue any other state openings that came up and so during that entire almost 10-year period there were no vacancies um mm-hmm. in the federal court but then the magistrate judges who were there started retiring. And so like over a 5 year period between like 2010 and 2015, almost the whole court has turned over, you know, turned over during that period.
1: So they just, you know, it's a great job, people don't leave. How difficult was it for you to leave your career as a lawyer behind and start this new journey as a magistrate judge?
0: It it was um it was just the right time, you know, it was almost 18 years um like I said I really enjoyed it. I was worried about being feeling isolated because more than anything, I I loved the people that I worked with. I I still have very good friends um, from the law firm, and uh, I was afraid that I would be a little bit lonely and would feel isolated. That was my biggest fear. Um, But the other things that were happening in my life that probably made it more, (laughs) more bearable was that you know, I've worked all those years. I, I worked for like almost 10 years, maybe more, 10, 11 years before I got married and started having a family. So I had just started having a family and I hats off to all of the, um, young women and men who were there with me and who came after me, um, working at a large law firm and raising a family at, the same time. It is incredibly challenging. I mean, I remember being asked earlier in my career, oh, talk about work-life balance. And I would say, well, it's not that hard. Well, I didn't have any kids to balance against. So it was, you know, it was incredibly challenging. Uh, my husband and I both worked a lot. He traveled out of the country a lot. So we knew that something had to give. And I did see this as an opportunity for me to have a little bit more time and space, more control over my time, I should say. And that was a huge, (laughs) was a huge factor in my, in my decision. So it made it a little bit easier for me to make the decision than I think it otherwise would have been.
1: What do you enjoy most about your work as a judge?
0: You know, even, even in the most challenging um, issues that just, I find it very rewarding to be in a position of, uh, like I said before, helping helping to solve a problem. You know, helping people solve problems. If it's civil litigants, um, hearing all of the facts and and listening to all sides and making the decision that I think is the most just and fair decision. And this kind of goes back to that bringing the the law to life. I mean, I really. I really believe in that. So, you know, the law is not always it's not it's not always clear cut, but um but I do think that uh it's
1: it's a great guide to get you to the right decision. What is the most challenging aspect of the work?
0: Yeah, there are a lot of limitations. There are a lot of Questions, problems, issues that the law can't solve or that you can't really address um, within the confines of the justice system. You know, there are what I see from from my vantage point are huge societal issues that some of those need to be resolved by lawmakers, you know, by policy makers, and that's the most challenging thing. You know, sometimes you see someone you know, one of the things that that really struck me after I I got on the bench was how frequently um I would come into court and hear a situation, in especially in the criminal cases, and I would you know, I, I would see victims on both sides of the V. So there's the person who was actually victimized but Many, many times, the perpetrator has also been a victim, a victim of lots of things, including, you know, not having access to education, not having access to mental health care, having abusive family, whatever. So that's that's been that is, those are problems that I can't solve. I see them, but I can't solve them.
1: That's challenging. In in this role, and and using kind of that lens of you know you seeing victims on both sides, are there ways or or what ways can you as a judge like influence and impact local community, broader community? Are there ways in which that can happen in your role?
0: I mean, I'm limited, right? Because I can't get involved in politics, um, and so I avoid that, which is not necessarily a bad thing for me. Um, but one of the things that I that I do do, I was asked to uh, another judge um, on our court started a um, it's a sentencing alternative court. We have a bunch of diversion courts. I'm sure you've heard of like drug court and things like that. And so this is a little bit different. It's it's in that vein of a drug court, but it's a way that it's a way that we can be involved. So this court. Um, it's like a diversion court, right? So it's someone who uh, is guilty of the crime. They, they have a crime that they could be looking at a very serious time. So these, you know, federal cases, it could be a drug trafficking case. Some of these people have mandatory minimum sentences of 10 years. And some of these people have never committed a crime before, or they are... Um, maybe they committed minor crimes and they've never really been in the federal system before. And so they come in and and uh, if with the agreement of the U.S. Attorney's Office or so the prosecutor who's prosecuting them has to agree, um, the uh, there's a pretrial services office that supervises folks. So these are people who have been charged. They were released on bond while awaiting trial. And then through their attorneys, they apply to be in this court, this program that I'm one of the two judges presiding over. And uh, they plead guilty. If they are accepted into the program, they plead guilty to the crime. And then their sentencing date is deferred for up to two years. And then they undergo intensive supervision during that two-year period. If they And and so we are administering that supervision. It's a team of people. It's two judges, prosecutors, federal defenders. There's a therapist. And we usually use interns from the local um, social work school and from the law school. And they help us connect these people to resources. And one of the things that we're working on is making sure that there's a victim impact aspect of it so that they can be accountable for the crimes that they've committed. and. if they are successful and they complete the program, like I said, it's it's about two years that they're under supervision. Then we have a co- we have a graduation. It's a court proceeding where they are allowed to withdraw their guilty plea, and the government dismisses the charges, and they walk away with no criminal conviction at all. Not only do they not go to prison, but they have no conviction and hopefully a new lease on life. So we've seen people who, you know, we give them tasks, right? So you must get your GED. You must complete this trade school program. You must, you know, get sober. Um, we we tend not to take people with extreme substance abuse disorders because there are specialty courts for that. But some people just, they have a whole bunch of debt, they have not been paying their, they run up credit card bills. So we help to get, we partner them with bankruptcy lawyers and, you know, whatever it is that they need help with. Um, and it is probably the most rewarding part of my job is to to see these people who, who really turn their lives around. It's great.
1: Wow. That's, that's really, really incredible. And yeah, that, that seems like that would be really, really impactful work throughout that two-year process. Hard pivot here. A couple more questions for you. What's one piece of advice you would give to someone who is looking to pursue a career in law or to become a judge?
0: I would say um, if you are in high school um, – there are many, many roads that can lead to a career in the law. Don't confine yourself. Um, I mean, I I kind of followed a traditional pre-law curriculum, how the schools were kind of describing it. But you don't have to um, subscribe to any one path. And that's one of the things that I've learned. People come to the law from all manner of profession. Um, What you do need to have, I think, though, is is you need to have strong research and analytical skills, strong writing skills, um, and really the ability to think critically. That's it. And you're going to learn some of that in law school. So, but ask yourself, you know, why do you want to do this? What is your ultimate uh, purpose in doing it? I like really enjoy the law. I, I like learning about the law and why laws were passed, and you know what was the purpose of it. Who was this intended to help? And is this is this problem one that is best answered by this legal principle? You know, if you're if you're not a if you don't like that, then you know don't. I can tell people why they shouldn't go to law school. Don't go to law school because you want the title. Don't go to law school because you think you're going to make a lot of money. You may not. But, you know, a law degree is just invaluable, even for people who never actually practice law, but learned those important critical thinking skills and then maybe went into business. I have many friends who were JD MBAs who tell me that their law degree is invaluable, not just because they have the degree, but because of the approach to problem solving that a legal uh, training gives you. So I'm all team, be a lawyer, think like a lawyer. You don't necessarily have to practice like a lawyer. I mean, you know, I, I took a pay cut to become a judge. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is a happy, this is a happy thing for me because I'm, I'm doing everything about the law that I love, you know, the the analysis and learning about the law and applying it and seeing it, how it applies to people. And I don't have to worry about any of the business side of it, which you have to do if you're in a law firm. There's still a business aspect to that, obviously.
1: I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, There are two last questions for you. If you just reflect on your career, life in general, what are you most proud of? Well,
0: I'm proud of being a United States magistrate judge. There's only like 500 or so of us, 555 of us in the country. And it's a real honor to be able to serve, you know, the country and this community in this way. There's, I love every aspect of it. Um, yesterday, I had a group of fourth graders in my classroom doing a mock trial, um, <laughs> a mock trial on on littering, and um, especially for the the young, you know, the, the the black and the brown kids to see people of color sitting on the bench and knowing that this is not something that's out of reach. That really meant a lot to me. A lot of the kids came up and they were hugging me. Hey, you are amazing (laughs) and I said no you're amazing so love doing that proud of the job that I have um my one of my favorite things to do is uh naturalization ceremonies so we get to swear in new citizens and that's a big deal to me love very very proud the first time I did it I I think I was in tears because I uh when I told them after I swore them in that I also was a naturalized citizen, like just the faces of the people and their family members, and they were clapping. And so many people came up and thanked me for that. Um, hugely proud of that. and um i'm I'm really proud of of my family. I've got two great kids, and my husband is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> he's he's all he's a very impressive person. Uh, just, you know, so I have a lot of things to be thankful for. And a lot of things to be proud of.
1: My last question for you. And while you have answered this in some ways throughout the podcast, the direct question is, what is your why?
0: My purpose is to to serve, to serve the people in my community, to serve my family, to serve my friends, to serve my country.